it really was, I, I mean, there were a few things, but personally, other than I, you know, had just been fascinated over and over by how teamwork works and, and why it usually doesn't work, I really did have this personal motivation where my job was, was moving from, I'm the one who comes up with the ideas and executes things, and I'm on the hook for having the right answers, to... I'm on the hook for helping other people find the right answers, and I'm on the hook for helping other people do work better than I could do on my, on my own. And uh, and so really, I had this hunger to understand how could I do better at that job? How could I be a better? Welcome to Innovation and Leadership, where I interview uncommonly high achievers like top investment fund managers, elite special operations soldiers, startup CEOs who sold their companies for billions of dollars, pro athletes, Hollywood filmmakers really as many different kinds of experts as I can. The whole idea is to hear how they did it and then what advice they have for the rest of us that can be applied to the organizations we're trying to grow and innovate. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed today's show. Today on the show, we've got Shane Snow. Shane, thanks for making time. Hey, thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Well, as I mentioned before we started, I'm really excited to have you. I've, I've actually been thinking about asking you to be on the show for all three years plus that we've been doing it. So it's it's like a personal fun thing for me to have you on, um, but for people who that's, don't, that's really cool to hear. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so for people who don't know Contently, uh, they don't know Smart Cuts, they don't know Dream Teams, and and um, your other book, The Storytelling Edge. Can you give people just the elevator pitch on what you've been what you've been doing for the last <laughs> number of years, and then we'll dive into different parts of it. I am a journalist, and I'm really interested in human behavior. So a lot of my journalism has focused on psychology and sociology and why we make the decisions we do. And I've generally written about those things in the context of business. And, uh, and as a journalist, I, you know, I've started out in magazines and blogs, writing about technology and science and business, then started my own company and applied some of the things I've been writing about. And then out of that, returned to writing and, uh, and wrote some of the things that I'd learned from the business side, but also went back out into journalism and research to, uh, to learn how to be better at business. So I've kind of had those two sides, uh, practical business experience, growing companies, trying to practice innovation, and then the other side of covering innovation and science and behavior uh, by interviewing amazing people and, uh, and writing about it. I love it. So um, the book Smart Cuts had a big effect on me. I've recommended it to so many CEOs and friends and talented people to read it. Um, can you give people the, the premise of the book? Yeah. Uh, first of all, thank you. for, for That's the best uh, feedback an author can get is, uh, is re referrals to other people to read your work. So thank you. The Smart Cuts is about the idea that the typical way of doing things, what we normally come to call the best practice, is usually not actually the best way of doing things if you want to get ahead, if you want to be creative or be innovative, that if everyone is doing the same thing, the only way to change the game is to do something different. And so it's kind of a look at that sort of hacker mentality, um, what's called in psychology, lateral thinking throughout history. So how do you make big change? How does innovation actually happen? And uh, and how have we seen it play out in history? So smart cuts are different than shortcuts. It's not cutting corners. It's finding smarter ways to do things. 
and this ends up manifesting in you know growing businesses or, or climbing a career ladder more quickly. Um, but more than that, it's usually ends up in a lot of work that uh, behind the scenes people don't see, and then sort of the myth of overnight success of you know being able to accomplish really incredible things because you think differently, but because no one saw what you were doing coming. Well, and, and can you give a few examples like the guy inv invented Ruby and, and race car driving angle and, you know, fastest way to become a president of the United States? Sure. So what I tried to do is look at underlying fundamental principles of how people make these kinds of big innovative moves. And among those principles, there's two that uh, the, they're just sort of universal. The, the one with the presidents that's really interesting is basically looked at data of superlatively successful people. So presidents of the United States, CEOs of Fortune 500 companies, and looked at the career paths that these folks tend to take. And then looked at other politicians as well. And basically people that, that have had to compete in a really significant way in order to get to the top of some sort of leadership role. And what the data shows is that most people that end up in these kinds of positions, especially the ones that end up getting to the top very quickly, are the ones who did not spend their whole career in one lane. So politicians that spend 30, 40 years in politics rarely, rarely uh, become president. It happens, but it's much more rare than someone who gets into politics later after establishing leadership credibility in some other field. And I wrote this before Donald Trump was elected, but ironically, the uh, that first chapter about uh, about this um, predicted that he would win over a career politician like Hillary Clinton. It, you know, there's a lot of other factors of why people win elections, but the the theory is that if you have established your credibility in one field, it's a lot easier to cross over into another field than to wait your turn and climb the ladder and pay your dues in that field. And uh, which is actually also why I think Hillary had an easier time winning in the Senate um, because she had established all of this credibility as first lady. It was an easy jump to make rather than the typical path, which is you get elected to some really small community role and then you, once you get to the state legislature and then you run for Senate. So what that those stories sort of illustrate is this idea that uh, creativity is about combining things that haven't been combined before. Innovation is about thinking differently. And often that manifests in importing expertise or credibility from one area to another. And so there's lots and lots of examples in history of this, but that idea of the sideways move being a way to, to help a company or a person get past the inevitable wait in line thing that happens when we're talking about paying your dues or you know or climbing to the top of a company or or politics so this idea of sideways moves can help us to accelerate where we're going. If you're not qualified for, you know, what you're attempting to do, then, you know, it's not going to work. No one's going to elect someone or vote for someone just because they come from somewhere else. They're going to vote for someone because they have some bona fides in another industry. So that's one. Uh, the the one with the with the race car driver that you bring up is uh, is another one of these principles, which is about building off of platforms rather than reinventing the wheel. And this applies with technology as, also, as well as careers and, and other things. But it's, a, it's the idea that if you are trying to attack a problem, you want to look at what technologies or 
resources are out there that allow you to have to do less work just to get to the baseline. So the simple analogy is if we're having a contest of who can throw the tennis ball in the air higher, if I'm standing on a table, I'm going to have a leg up. I don't need to throw it uh, higher than you. I just, uh, I can throw it just as hard as uh, as you do and, and still win. And this is where there, there's something really interesting with technology that a lot of times companies that build products using the latest technology soon get disrupted by companies that wait a little longer until there's slightly better technologies that they can build on top of and save themselves a lot of work. And so with the race car driver, the, the story that I, I use is this guy who invented Ruby on Rails, which is a, a programming framework for exactly that reason. Basically, said so there's a lot of stuff that you do over and over and over again uh, as a programmer. What if we just kind of made that all simple and automatic? So, you know, if you want to build a login page, you don't code it all from scratch yourself. There's just like a basically, you know, a button you can push that makes your logic login page logic. That's in a nutshell what it's about. It's a little more complicated than that. But this idea of abstraction, you, you don't do the work that's already been done so that you can do the work on top of that. And with the, the race car analogy is this same guy applied. Uh, his name's David Heinemeyer Hansen. He's one of the founders of Basecamp and, uh, and the creator of Ruby on Rails. He decided at a very late stage in life that he wanted to be a race car driver. Not that he's, you know, that he's elderly, but race car drivers that are successful usually start out really young. He decided to start when he was in his 30s. And he ended up uh, racing in the 24 hours of Le Mans and winning all these global racing championships because he applied this same thing. The way he thought about uh, climbing the ladder in race cars and learning how to, to be a superlative race car driver was, uh, was not by going to the schools and working your way up slowly. It was by figuring out how high he could climb uh, without having to uh, sort of do the, the BS that it is not specifically about getting him to be faster on the racetrack. And, you know, the, the very simple analogy is that he is very smart about what tires he uses. If you're, you're racing and, um, and it's really hot out or you're racing and it's rainy out or the, tramp is, uh, the track is wet, the tires that you use can make a big difference in how fast you can go, how much traction you have on curves. And he, uh, I mean, he was super brilliant. And a lot of race car strategy now revolves around uh, when you change your tires. But at the time when he was doing this, it was really uncommon to think about uh, tires the way that he did, especially in the lower levels of, of racing when he was getting started. And so his mastery of knowing when the tire was going to give him a little extra boost and, uh, and being able to predict that was basically like standing on a higher platform and throwing the tennis ball. And with that, he also recognized that if you are uh, the worst person in the league, you're a lot more likely to learn the tricks from masters in the league than if you are the best person in the league. So instead of staying in the lower levels and winning a lot before he, you know, tried out for the higher levels, he just tried to do the bare minimum he could to be the worst racer in the higher levels so that he could learn from those really incredible racers. That's another example of basically, yeah, giving yourself a stool to stand on while you work and, and practicing with those experts became a platform for him to get really good at racing. And in only a few years time, he's winning global championships. Well, I, I love it. I love the book so much. You know, for me, I think between being impatient and having ADHD, the book was like great of like, you don't have to wait in line forever. If you instead yeah. of just following the conventional wisdom and, and going through the same ruts as everybody else and, and hoping you get picked, like, basically, like, if you work harder, 
and like if you think harder on the this is my takeaway and i want you to jump in and see if you see if it's if it's different to you but like i think the biggest takeaway to me is like don't just take conventional wisdom at its face like you can go dissect the people who got more with less that the people who got there faster the people who who like prove that that conventional wisdom doesn't have to apply every time and their patterns of how those people do it and if you can if you can synthesize those patterns or find that, you know, the 80-20, the Pareto principle, like the, that vital, those vital aspects, you might be able to skip like 30 years and get right to the top of things. And uh, I don't know, I feel like there's like this discipline of thought instead of just acting. Do you see it different or how would you describe it? I, I think that's a fantastic way to summarize it. I wish I wish that, uh, that my elevator pitch was as clean as that. I, I think that's exactly right, that the convention is a double-edged sword. Sometimes it can make things faster because you don't have to think but sometimes not having to think is the problem and uh and yeah we often jump to you know working hard as the route to success but working hard on the wrong thing or on the thing everyone else is working on is not as smart as thinking hard for a while and then working hard on the right thing so it's you know one of the analogies i use in the book is that world champion surfers show up to the beach hours early like six in the morning and just watch the waves they just watch and they think and they study and then they get on the surfboard and they win it's not about the practice and the push-ups and you know the the muscle building at a certain point you need all of that but it's actually about the thinking um, and the strategy that makes the difference at that championship level so i i have a an editor from wired magazine who is one of my favorite editors who used to always tell me that great writing is only one third writing the other two thirds are thinking and research and I think that is uh, is a great analogy outside of writing. Great business is not 100% work. It's one-third work and two-thirds thinking and, uh, and figuring out where you should be working. Well, I love it. And I, I guess I love that. Um, so I'm such an audiobook nerd. My listeners know I've listened to, I don't know, probably 700. Like if you don't count two or 300 Jason Bourne genre <laughs> books, just the business <laughs> books, it's, you know, it's got to be 700-ish audiobooks I've done in the last dozen years, right? And wow. um, I think about uh, the really great books that I read repeatedly, that I refer like crazy. And so often the author has actually implemented the strategy. So there's this ring of authenticity when they talk. And I think about like, uh, you know, your story about you, you want to write for Wired. They say no, it'll take years. You go write for the smaller the smaller eight, uh, publication, then a bigger one, then a bigger one. And six months later, you're coming back to Wired saying, look, I've done this and this and this. Can I write for you now? And they say yes, and you skip years. Like just the fact you've done it yourself, I think is such an advantage in, I mean, obviously you, you have your keynote speeches all over and these big companies that hire you. But I look at Contently as well. And for people who don't know, at least what was initially attractive to me about Contently years ago is this idea of, you know, everybody's, you know, you get hammered to death in the business press about you need to be doing content marketing, right? But mm -hmm. so often people get like some 23-year-old intern to put out fluffy posts on Facebook that don't actually drive any revenue and don't actually, you know, earn anybody any street cred as far as a high-profile expert in their industry, right? And mm -hmm. then I see you guys and you're like, we will get you a New York Times, we will get you a New York Times um, journalist to write that and we will broker this and those people who have no idea how to contact we will help you get that quality of stuff for for your brand and, and bring that level of thinking and expertise to your brand I mean what a huge short circuit for people who have nowhere to start there and then what you guys have gone on to do with analytics and realizing everything else that that people need so that 
that translates into actually growing a business. I mean, I am I missing do. any ma major points out of Contently there? Uh, I mean, I think that's a that's a good way to summarize the the initial premise, right? Is it, it's exactly that. As we've gone on, we've you know we've incorporated other principles of innovation in our journey to you know to build the company and to uh, to make it more profitable, to be able to provide more value and all of that. One of the things that's uh, that's sort of an interesting example of a lateral move, I guess, that is on my mind right now with Contently. So I'm still on the board. I haven't been involved in the day to day for a few years, but I'm still on. The the board and the new CEO that we hired a little about a year ago um, did a lot of really smart things to put the company in a place where now even though the economy is in in the toilet and uh, you know and working uh, is really hard right now um, the company is in amazing shape one of the things that we've realized is that from the beginning contently was set up as a way to manage remote work in a really smart mm -hmm. way. And so now as, you know, all of the employees of Contently are working from home, they're no longer in the office. It's been the smoothest transition because uh, that's, that's what, you know, the company spent all this time doing. And, uh, and so now, you know, Contently is, is doing webinars and educating people and I'm doing, uh, you know, online training courses around remote work based on all of those lessons. And it's like, huh, we thought we were building a content marketing company and, you know, still are, but also it turns out now we can do killer education on, uh, on how to work better from afar, how to do remote work, which, uh, you know, is, is, is very much like a sideways opportunity, but, but super cool. And so the company is helping a lot of people right now um, and, and using a lot of this training to, to generate actually donations to help out freelancers and people we care about. Um, but I think that is, uh, it's cool to have seen how some of these principles that I've, I've written about and that, that, you know, I've just been talking about have been infused in the DNA of this company so that it's, it's not just about, um, you know, climbing to the top of a career. And it's not just about coming up with uh, the greatest business that can take down all of the competitors or whatever. It's about thinking this way uh, at every level and, and constantly, how can we um, think differently and, and apply these kind of smart cuts type of principles to uh, to making change rather than just doing what everyone else is doing. So that's been really cool to see. Yeah. Well, um, and I know we haven't covered it yet. Everybody should be going to shanesnow.com get his books uh, and check out this academy. Um, I, we got to we got to dive more into dream teams as well, but um, I, I'm, I'm interested this, this idea of the academy, obviously you kind of dug your well before you're thirsty with this ability to, to now be doing that academy right off the website here. Um, mm -hmm. I, I want to talk about dream teams. And I want to talk about the academy, but maybe we can do it in context a little bit. Um, and I know we've only got a, a little bit here left for part one of the interview, but I guess for me, I think about uh, listening to some of your keynotes and things. I'm going to put some words in your mouth and have you correct me, okay? But okay. <laughs> I feel like you have you have paid the price to think hard and do two-thirds thinking and one-third writing. And you've got ahead. Um, and then it seems like part of your motivation, and maybe I'm misinterpreting this, but it sounded like some of your motivation in Dream Teams, in, in the research for it and then writing the book, was how to help the rest of your the rest of your company come be doing more lateral thinking and how to help other people do this instead of you, instead of it just being you. And then how do you balance out the, you know, the people who are different than you can come up with great ideas, but then, you know, have the humility to be able to work through the friction that's naturally going to create. Um, is that, or, or I should just ask what, what were your motivations for writing dream teams? Yeah. So it, it really was, I, I mean, there were a few things, but 
personally, other than I, you know, had just been fascinated over and over by how teamwork works and, and why it usually doesn't work, I really did have this personal motivation where my job was was moving from I'm the one who comes up with the ideas and executes things and I'm on the hook for having the right answers to I'm on the hook for helping other people find the right answers. And I'm on the hook for helping other people do work better than I could do on my, on my own. And, uh, and so really, I had this hunger to understand how could I do better at that job? How could I be a better team leader? Um, especially when I reached the point where I realized that, you know, I'm, I'm a smart person, you know, and I, but I, and I work with other smart people. But if, it, if our company was going to be constrained by how smart I was, then we were screwed. Because at a certain point, I, am, <laughs> I just can't do it. You know, I, I don't have the answers, um, even though, uh, you know, I, I'm a thinky kind of person. And, you know, so I was, I was anxious about that. And realized when I was looking at patterns in, you know, what I had written about uh, with innovation and, you know, and human behavior over the, the years that there's a, a really surefire way to spark lateral thinking, to, to get, a, to think differently. And it's usually the surefire way is to have someone else push your thinking. You know, a lot of times uh, it's hard to just come up with you know, a radically new and innovative way to do something on your own. Even a lot of the principles of smart cuts are about taking ideas from one realm and applying them to another realm. And so it's this combination of different kinds of thinking that often is the the, the most surefire way to, to hack creativity and innovation. And then I realized that that actually explains why, you know, teams can be so awesome. Um, and the question then actually was, well, if some teams are so good at combining their thinking and seeing further than any of them could on their own, why is it that that usually doesn't happen? And, uh, and why is it that most of the time teamwork is like the bigger the team, the more strength the numbers you have, but the slower things go and the boss is still the one who has to, you know, who is the, the constraint, you know, the, if you ha you're lucky enough that you have a leader who's really brilliant and, and, you know, and can think innovatively, then you're in good shape. And as soon as that leader's gone, then you're in less good shape. That's that's not a good model. And I was afraid that that, that was kind of what was happening. And I think specifically is like, you know, I hired a, a head of marketing who was way better at marketing than me. And I'm like, uh-oh, I found out this company that does content marketing. And now someone who's working for me has more answers than I do. I better change my job to being helping her and her team uh, do their best work possible. So how does that work? So that's really where where dream teams kind of came from and and also from a lot of observations just around things like uh you know data shows that cities with lots of immigrants tend to produce more patents and more small businesses and you know more invention comes out of these cities where there's a lot of cultural mixing and, and geographic mixing but also those same cities tend to have lower voter participation and a little bit more fear, uh, a little more xenophobia and, you know, fear of crime, not necessarily more crime, but fear of it. And so, you know, observations like that spoke to, I think, the underlying human nature, which is that uh, different people, when they combine their thinking or they bump into each other, have the potential to think differently. And, you know, it forces us to think differently, uh, to get outside the box. But also different people are suspicious of each other and afraid of each other. And, and that insight 
started to explain what I was seeing in my company when you had different people who would butt heads in the way they saw things, but you know, given the right circumstances, came up with amazing stuff. But then you also had people that would butt heads and in the wrong circumstances really became you know, a toxic thing for the rest of the team. And then I saw that as an analogy for sort of the whole of humanity. And that's really what Dream Teams evolved into was an exploration of that. Uh, what are the right ingredients and circumstances to get you know, productivity out of differences and conflict? And what are the, the circumstances that, that make it harder to do so? Yeah. You know, um, I'm thinking, I, I look at, you know, writing for Wired and Fast Company in New Yorker and Washington Post and all these places you've been profiled or written, you know, you've, you've been, your work's been published in or they've interviewed you. Um, maybe to kind of wrap up part one here, um, question I, I've really enjoyed asking different guests lately is um, with, you know, being high profile, getting invited to the fancy things you get invited to, you know, being interviewed. What's a question that you wish people would ask more? What's an important question that you don't get asked enough? Hmm. Yeah, um, I think I, I wish that that I would get asked more about like kind of my life philosophies, I guess. You know, what outside of, you know, work and uh, success and, you know, business and all of that, what helps me to, what's helped me to, I guess, uh, become a better person, which I think is directly applicable. You know, it really helps uh, in work. Um, but I think a part I've been thinking about that because I've, I've been focusing a subset of my writing over the last couple of years to this idea of uh, virtues and, um, you know, what it means to be a good person and, and however you define it. And I, I think I, I wish I'd be asked that more because the, the thing that's really helped me a lot over the last couple of years to get over my negative tendencies and the kind of the bad thinking patterns that actually prevent me from uh, applying a lot of what I write about is, uh, is learning about how my ego works. And um, I, I think it's a really fascinating topic, ego. But uh, one thing that I'm convinced of is that egos are different, just like personalities are different. And understanding what triggers you to feel like you're losing control versus other people really opens up a lot for helping you to analyze your unproductive behavior, helping you to decide how you want to live and, and work with other people. Um, and But also, I think, giving you a little bit more benefit of the doubt to give to other people when negative situation happens or you deliver someone bad news or whatever it is and someone reacts in a way that you think is awful or crazy reflecting understanding that egos are different and the personality is uh, is a part of that equation um, and reflecting on how you react negatively to things helps you to to do a little bit better you know an example that's work related for this is uh, I had a, a a manager who I was I was managing who uh, when he faced confrontations in the moment, would get really red faced and really angry and sometimes say things that he regretted and then would have to come back and apologize. And, uh, and thinking about how I just thought of him as a bad person until thinking about, you know, the context of ego and, you know, and, and personality triggers realize that when I am confronted with really bad news in the moment, I, I don't get angry, but I get really ashamed. And I, you know, I have tendencies that are pretty unproductive to try and squirm out of that awkward, shameful feeling. Um, and, and I think for a while I was doing really good at lying to myself and, uh, you know, and, and kind of self-deception in order to not have to face 
problems and and uh, you know realizing that this guy who would get angry that's just a different version of that same thing um it's just he behaves differently than me and that's caused me to have a lot more i think empathy for him and to and to realize that you know someone who gets angry when you give them bad news give them time that's how they roll so give them time and then come back let them think and uh you know and meet them on terms that allow them to to put their best foot forward um just like i would like people to to meet me on those terms too so i think that's the kind of thing that i've i've enjoyed uh sort of leveling up personally around that and uh and it does seem like a lot of you know business focused interviews they just want to know the the secrets to success which by the way i don't have them all i just have some good good underlying principles but uh but i think uh the secrets to becoming a congruent person and understanding yourself and others really uh help a lot whether you're talking about business or just rolling through life so anyway thanks for uh, thanks for asking let me monologue a little bit about that no i i love that um by the way are you familiar at all with um martin buber's work like uh his book i am thou from 100 years ago or leon festinger's work about cognitive dissonance i'm not actually i'm gonna write those down you might you might really love those my heroes guys i used to work for when i took a break between running my private equity fund and got into management consulting before starting this you know our, our new investment fund we're just getting going um i went and worked for the arbinger institute and oh yeah those guys are, I mean, they just have thought so deeply, so long about these concepts you're talking about. And then they've turned me on to so many other authors and thinkers in, in related fields. And uh, anyways, I, re I really love the level of thought you put into that um, because it's one of those things that you're right. We're, we're like in such a microwave society if we want everything fast, cheap and easy, you know. And so mm -hmm. our business media and unfortunately a lot of our business books that where there is a chance for deeper thinking are stuck on tactics and more surface level things rather than realizing like, I don't know if you're saying this, but I feel like you're saying like who we are at a human level is like the biggest magnet we could have. And it's just mm -hmm. like making everyone else's life around us better. If we're willing to do the hard work and look at our own blind spots in the mirror, is that, would you say it differently? I'd say once again, very well put. Yeah, that's, that's exactly it. Love it. Well, listen, everybody, uh, please go to shanesnow.com. Check out his books, check out his new academy, and uh, tune in for part two of our interview with Shane. Thanks so much.